The episode of I Think Therefore I Fan you're about to listen to discusses the following works. Star Trek Discovery, Dirty John, Seasons 1 and 2, Community, The Handmaid's Tale, Kevin Can F Himself, and Kim's Convenience. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Okay, so this is the final episode of season seven, and wow. um, we're we're back. So we lots of things going on this week. What do, what do we got? Well, um, we've got an interview. One of our last interviews with what well, one of them? The last yeah, interview. the last interview from, from the, the PCA. Pop, Pop Culture Association. Yeah, yep. David Lacanto. Looking yep. forward to that. And we're sort of just going to share some thoughts, summing up the year. It's been a hell of a year. It really has. It's yeah. just almost identical to every other year of my life, except for a small handful of differences that um, make, make it Make all seem, the difference? Seem, yeah, it's just, it's indistinguishable <laughs> from oh, man. other years that were just catastrophic. You know, I've been doing some spring cleaning, and you know, I'm encountering uh, or uncovering things from just like a year, a year and a half ago, maybe two years, and they just seem... Whoa, I got this in 2019. That feels like a century ago mm-hmm. or something. And actually, it's, it's, it's making it far easier to purge because mm-hmm. I'm more likely to get rid of things that I'm not feeling strongly connected to. And uh, I don't know, all these events uh, of, of the recent year and a half or so have, have disconnected me from my former self yeah, in I, many ways. I popped in my office the other day, um, and I'd, I've been in a couple times, but not really to work. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was looking at the stuff on my desk, and it and it seemed same thing. Like, you know, several years ago. So I've got this book on the metaphysics of death, and it's like it's been a long time since I was was yeah. working on that. Yeah. Um, at, at the start of the pandemic and just the end of um, the previous year, I was doing a, a study in modal logic with a, a student, mm-hmm. right? And um, that seems like five years ago. Yeah, I was in my office, and I had post-it notes. You know, reminding me to do things that just seem like, whoa. Yeah. They, I mean, it really does feel like there was an apocalypse and we're just kind of walking through the rubble in many ways. Not At no time more so than when we went to the Newgate Mall the other day. Mm-hmm. For <laughs> those that are out of town, Newgate Mall's the mall in our town. Well, at, at um, a town over or so. A, but a I, town, our old town. Yeah. yeah, I spent much of my young life there. You know, when I was a teenager, I would do plays at the local community playhouse. And then in between the matinee and the night show, I'd go over and... Spend some time at this mall, which is now a, just a ghost town. Yeah, all that's left is the same Ford Fuelers and um, Hot Topic. Yeah, and and some like... You hot know, Topic is the cockroach of <laughs> teenage clothing stores. It, 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 you can't kill it. And yet it's great. Yeah, it's great. It's going to survive the Holocaust. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can't go in there. It just feels 
as wrong as can be, but um, yeah. Yeah, so um, so lots of things to, to think about and to speculate on. Um, I've been thinking a lot, and this connects up to our episode later, about um, how we should be conceiving of things like governments in light of everything that we've been through, right? Um, there's sort of a libertarian outlook, which I've, I, uh, just cards on the table, I've never been particularly um, sympathetic to, and, mm-hmm. and that's putting it mildly. I mean, I've always downright disliked libertarian worldviews. Yeah, I, I've spent a good portion of my philosophical life trying to decide which view I think is more ridiculous, the libertarian view with respect to free will or libertarianism, the political view? And, and the answer is it's a tie. Yeah. yeah. So neither of us are libertarians. but Yeah, so um, libertarianism is, the as a political view, in case some of our listeners are students and are unfamiliar with the concept, is, uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a, a political position that emphasizes small government first, mm-hmm. um, for, for the most part, uh, depending on what's needed to protect um, one's negative rights, so the right to life, liberty, and property. So mm-hmm. the, the government should be small and shouldn't get involved with people's lives unless it's protecting life, liberty, and property. Yeah. Uh, and yet, the, the, those, those things are often, the protection of those things are frequently very, very narrowly construed by libertarians. Mm-hmm. One might think that uh, access to health care would be something that would be required in order to protect one's right to life. Right. But that's never what libertarians mean. Libertarians are almost universally opposed to you know, universal health care. Mm-hmm. Or the, the government even supplementing it, right? Right. Right. It's, it's, um, they'll call it legalized plunder. You have to rob somebody by way of taxes to pay mm-hmm. for health care. So it's, it's out. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the, the best way to understand it is, is the way that I first came to understand it. Um, and this is right at the beginning of my philosophical career. I was an undergraduate and I got invited to a libertarian party. Um, not to be confused with the libertarian party. <laughs> um, although I, it, but maybe a bit of both. It, it might have been related. Yeah. And so I, I went to this strange party, and there were two distinct groups of people at the party, um, and they weren't interacting with one another at all. Um, so, you know, on the left side of the room were people that wanted to legally smoke pot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they tended to be much younger, people mm-hmm. in their, their 20s, sure. um, you know, teens and, and maybe early 30s. On the right side of the room, were rich people that didn't want to pay taxes for mm-hmm. anything mm-hmm. other than, you know, police, military, a court system, and, mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, and they tend to be, you know, much older, right? Mm-hmm. So you have strange bedfellows, right? right. These, are, these are people that, you know, in any other segment of life would have despised one another. But they had this common thing, yeah. the government's messing with our crap. I mean, for me, and sorry, listeners, I'm sure there's some libertarians out there listening, but for me... Not, not anymore. <laughs> you, can, you can write me an email and... Well, please don't. I don't know. Or do. Whatever. Um, <laughs> there, uh, <laughs> write, write me an email at Bob <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I... It's, you know, just the way you've told that story. I struggle to see often how... Um, libertarian worldviews don't just reduce down to um, protection of selfish interests, mm-hmm. you know? So the story that you told, the people on one side of the room had a selfish interest in uh, keeping as much of their money as they possibly could, and the people on the other side of the room had a selfish interest in smoking pot. It, you know, you weren't talking about, like, a communal interest in a common good. Right, and I was going to ask them that question at the party and get to the bottom of it, but I made the mistake of going to the right side of the room first, 
And I don't remember any of the rest of it. <laughs> um, I think we talked about the Grateful Dead a lot. Um, <laughs> Ate some brownies. You know, I'm an old man. This is before people had brownies. So. <laughs> yeah, so for me, um, you know, as I'm, as I'm thinking about the like governments of the future and how we might, if we were really genuinely proactive about how we were going to govern ourselves in the future and we were willing to make the necessary changes, for me... Um, the situation with the pandemic, the political situation in the past couple of years has really highlighted that libertarianism is not going to cut it as a system of government in a globalized world. Yeah, no, and, and in fact, the, the states that are having the most trouble getting past the pandemic. I mean, mm -hmm. so we, we've been enjoying being kind of out of it in some ways, being mm -hmm. vaccinated. We have certain mm -hmm. liberties and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, oddly, the people with the, the fewest actual liberties are the ones in, in the states that, that have a higher percentage of either libertarians or conservatives that are really pro-liberty, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the unwillingness to get a vaccine, mm -hmm. um, if you're being ethical and not exposing other people to harm and stuff, is keeping you still cooped up in your house. Right. Right. Which, But because of that commitment to selfishness, those people are very seldom actually cooped up in their houses. And yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. They're, they're well, about. philosophers make the distinction between, as I mentioned earlier, negative rights. But philosophers make the distinction between positive and negative rights. Mm -hmm. And so, libertarians are committed to protecting life, liberty, and property, and that's basically it in terms of what the government should be doing. Um, but others are, you know, other people argue that um, government should also be. Uh, ensuring access to positive rights. So that mm -hmm. that's like a right to healthcare, a right to education, a right to, you know, we, we think about, we can, th we can think about as a community and we're not going to agree completely, which is why we need systems that allow for some pluralism um, in terms of values. But we, we need to think like broadly construed, what does the good life look like? What are the features of the good life? Right. Mm -hmm. And um, we may not agree on everything, but being healthy is, is one of the features of the good life that we probably can agree on. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, being able to pursue our interests generally, so long as they're not bothering others. Now, what, so what, what's your take? Where, where are we headed with this? Um, 15 years from now, is the United States government paying for a higher percentage of health care than it currently is? I would, I would have thought with the current Supreme Court lineup, absolutely not. Right. Um, but just in recent weeks, they've defended Obamacare and, um, uh, it depends on how many things go to the Supreme Court. I mean, it, with our current um, construction of um, legislators, I'm not optimistic at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the best we can sort of hope for for quite a while is just the kind of gridlock that we have. Yeah. And then the worst that we can hope for is, is to get run over by, um, you know, differently constructed legislatures. Um, but it, it seems like, the, the most recent defense of Obamacare is sort of a signal from the courts that this is a right that they're not willing to take away, right? It's, it's a right that's been granted, and they they intend to protect it. Well, the Supreme Court has been very reluctant through, through its history um, to take away rights that are already enjoyed by people. Um, so, yeah, it, I, th I think they'd be, you know... So the optimist to me makes me think maybe we are trending towards um, a, a government, a, you know, a version of our government in the future. 
that's protective of at least those aspects of well, the good life? What one would hope. Um, well, okay, I, I have two thoughts about that. One, we've definitely seen, and I think that the abortion debate makes this perfectly clear. We've seen that um, the Supreme Court will grant what seems to be a pretty wide-ranging decision, and um, you know, so say something like Roe v. Wade, that people have right to access to abortion up to a certain point. I miss Roe v. Wade. We, we, I, I know I'm premature in saying that, but it's uh, a goner. Anyway, well, I'm on. hoping that, that by using the same reasoning, there that the court is going to be reluctant to take away rights that people already have yeah, access yeah. to. But we'll see. But but um, you know what what you see in response to like kind of wide ranging Supreme Court decisions is that states um, whittle away at you've get a, got a, a, a an in theory ruling right a kind of broad ranging ruling. But then the states go to work and find the loopholes. And so, right, um, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court may rule that a woman has a right to access to an abortion, but that but the states can uh, decide for themselves how they're going to go about implementing that, you know, how the, the kinds of restrictions that they're going to put on that. And they restrict it to the point of um, non-existence, practically. You know, there's going to be one abortion facility in the whole state. Mm-hmm. And that's going to, you know, somebody in, in the, the far south of the state isn't going to have the resources to drive 12 hours to the one abortion facility in the state. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, it depends. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm more pessimistic than you. I think it depends. Right. Mm-hmm. So it may be the case that we say yes to Obamacare, but states say n- states individually say no, 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 no to these various ways of accessing it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So- I, I may be not as optimistic as I said it a moment ago. Um, so, well, you, you had a couple other points Yeah, well, I, I wanted to say, uh, you know, I don't think, I, I think one of the concerns that we have right now is that we're so pitted against one another in partisan battles that we're no longer in any way trying to come to some agreement, like recognizing that we all have, that we have certain shared values and then many um, distinct values from one another, mm-hmm. that like we should respect pluralism while still trying to agree on some unified concept of the good, I think that we've just completely abandoned giving up, um, trying to come to a unified concept of the good. And it is just a free for all fight. And, and it's a, despite all the overlap, right? I mean, we can, we can agree on 80% of things and, and it's still a matter of if one political tribe says, I like this policy, the other one's against it. And this is at the level of the legislature, but it's also at the level of individual just you know talking to people in a in a bar or a coffee shop uh-huh. um it's yeah it's, 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 i mean i i don't know that we would i don't know that i even want to assent to the idea that we have some shared concept lots of overlap i mean i think i think that maybe if people were given a truth serum and they had to ab- they they couldn't fail to be honest about overlapping conceptions of the good mm-hmm. um then then we'd find some but right now i mean if uh, it's, it seems like if, if Democrats said that being healthy is good, Republicans would turn around and say that, look at those Democrats, they're trying to get you to be healthy. I mean, it's, uh, let me give you an example. So um, you, you believe that everybody should have access to food, um, uh, healthy food for that matter, and clean drinking water. Mm-hmm. All right. So most of my conservative friends would agree that um, middle class and wealthy people also should have access <laughs> mm-hmm. to healthy food and clean drinking water. Mm-hmm. There's our overlap. 
There, of some people, we all agree that they should eat. <laughs> right. Well, so, uh, you know, as, as we're thinking, I think this is an interesting question that's been raised by all these recent events, right? Um, is what's the best form of government and what should we be doing going forward? And ha- where is representative democracy getting us? So there's been this bizarre trend on the part of some politicians to deny that the United States is a democracy of any type. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I think that there's some, what I think is going on is there's some hand-waving there where they're relying on the accurate point that the United States is not a direct democracy. That is a democracy where every single person in the community um, directly votes for policies and so on. Um, but is instead, they're relying on the fact that we're not a direct democracy to rule out that we're a democracy at all, which of course there are many forms of democracy. Right. And in fact, they want to distance us currently from even the extent to which we resemble a democracy a direct democracy mm-hmm. with all these voter suppression laws and all of that. They, right. You know, I, I'm just thinking of you know, the idiot Tucker Carlson on TV saying, my vote counts as much as it does. Why shouldn't I want it to count more? As if he's offering a moral argument for being <laughs> right. in favor of anything that suppresses everybody else's vote. Argument. Right. right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So I was going to, I was going to say, you know, that, um, if we distinguish direct democracy where everyone votes from representative democracy, where people, uh, individuals are voting for a representative. Um, I, you know, the, the, the problems with direct democracy are well known and clear that there's the tyranny of the majority that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's take COVID or something. Um, uh, if it were the case that the majority of people were opposed to protecting others, if we had a dem- direct democracy, then we wouldn't be protecting others from COVID. Right, right. That's how we would make the decision. And yet I think that in recent years, um, we've seen some real challenges to representative democracy as well, because the people kind of, I mean, sorry, but aren't that well informed in making their voting decisions. They just identify with the party. They vote for that party. They pay no attention to what the candidate that they voted for is doing. They pay no attention to the sort of corporate um, or financial interests that the the representative is beholden to. And then um, what ends up happening is that the representative is no longer representing the interests of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so you just see that we're kind of screwed either, either way. I mean, I don't know that there is a, a, a form of government. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm certainly worried that, that we're, we're going to chip away at anything like democracy of any form. Anyway, so an area where I'm not um, particularly optimistic. Um, but we don't have to be completely screwed. Um, and I worry that we are. Okay, say more. Well, you know, we're, we're, we're making things worse, right? I mean. Well, and doing things like denying the results of a free and fair election. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, I, and suppressing the vote. Uh-huh. Um, and trying to get votes thrown out in court, right? All these mm-hmm. things that I think are sort of very un-American. They're fascist. Yeah. That's what they are. Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, I mean, it's, I've, I've been sort of angry about a lot of things um, for the entirety of my adult life and, and some of my other stuff. And so, you know, on the one hand, I don't want to say, gosh, I wish we could go back to the good old days um, where, you know, you just had run of the mill, you know, pre-Obama level gridlock. <laughs> um, but I guess that's what I'm saying, which is not that I want to go back to that, but that's the sense in which we don't have to be completely screwed. It's a bad state of affairs um, where you sort of long for a political system that doesn't work because you're looking down the barrel of one 
that's just completely bankrupt. Very terrifying. Yeah. 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 So, as we're thinking about governments of the future, Mm -hmm. um, we're going to talk about Star Trek a little, and that's kind of uh, imagining what uh, a sort of, uh, the way I see it, a, a fully realized liberal organization yeah, the, the would federation be doing. Is, right. is sort uh-huh. of the ideal. Right. And the episode, or the, the season of Discovery that we'll be talking with David Lacondo about, um, you know, sort of focuses on that um, when they've kind of done away with the Federation or it's lost most mm-hmm. of its power, mm-hmm. and now they need it back because all the same uh-huh. problems, you know, it's like, oh, we don't, we don't need, um, you know, security systems in our homes. No one gets burglarized anymore. Hmm. It's because of the great security. You take it away and then, uh-huh. uh-oh, we're getting robbed. You know, yeah. go to the garage and get out the, mm-hmm. the cameras. Um, before we get to the interview, I, I wanted to just talk about one more thing. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think as a society we learned any valuable lessons from the pandemic? Not that, that individuals didn't, but this kind of thing happens again. Do we just have the same almost instantaneous division of, of you know, positions and, and, uh, and are we, are, can, can we get vaccinated next time as soon as it's ready? Can people stay in? It's, have we have we set the stage for these things to always go badly now? I don't, I don't think it's, my take is that I don't think it's a matter of setting the stage. I think that um, in response to something like this, human psychology is going to dictate what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, if you look at what's happened in past major, pe- you know, pandemics, mm-hmm. the exact same things have happened. I mean, we, we've talked about this on previous episodes, but like there have been conspiracy theories. There have been people who were anti-maskers when masks were, you know, during the 1918 pandemic. So I think... You've, you've studied that one more than I have. Yeah. Were they in the same numbers? Because it, it just... It, yeah. I mean, it seems like we've got, you know... 30 or 40% of the country right yeah, now just yeah. absolutely dug People in. People doing, well... This didn't happen or it's not bad or screw you, I'm not going to... I have vaccine hesitancy because I don't like... The, the people passing out the vaccine. Or... Well, you might think that it was even um, more challenging at the time because World War One was happening mm-hmm. and people had real political interests in sending soldiers to war and all these types of things. And mm-hmm. heck, you couldn't have a pandemic going on at the same time. You, know, you couldn't yeah. be managing that. So there was a lot, I mean, internationally, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of pandemic denial. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the reason why it got called the Spanish flu was not because it originated in Spain, right, right, yeah. but because they were the first ones to actually openly report on it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you just see the exact same thing. So uh, I so uh, I have a two-part answer to your question. I think, one, um, individuals have learned lessons. <laughs> um, but I think as, as, as a larger group, um, we're not going to. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think that... Uh, but I do think, on the other hand, that um, if if we, I think that our technolo- technologically, that's going to be a different story because people are going to monopolize on, um, you know, d- what they take to be money makers. You know, capitalism is going to force. You know, it's it's like we won't we society won't learn unless we know we're going to make money from learning. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay, so uh, we've got an interview coming up, um, and it's from David Lacanto, as we mentioned. 
Yeah, yeah. I was I was at his talk at the PCA, um, and I, they, they were all pretty good there. But it, it was it was a really nice talk, uh, nice time, and I'm glad we got to talk to him um, about it um, on the, the podcast. Yeah, great. So um, let me just let you know a little bit about. Um, Dr. Lecanto. Uh, David Lecanto is a professor of sociology at New Mexico State University. He specializes in early American soci- sociological thought, identity, authenticity, and the Star Trek fandom. Lecanto is author of several articles and books, including Social Movements and the Collective Identity of the Star Trek Fandom, Boldly Going Where No Fans Have Gone Before, uh, from Lexington Books in 2020. Currently, he just finished The Story of Socio- Sociological Theory, Contextualizing Social Thinkers, in his spare time, you can find him at Star Trek conventions where he continues this long, strange trek he's been on since Star Trek's inception. So, without any further ado. Yep, let's head to the interview. David, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, so, um, great time this last week at the PCA. And this is um, the third set of interviews that we've done from that. Um, I particularly liked your talk, so um, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Okay. Well, I, I mean, it, it has its origins really in talking with a lot of my friends uh, who are Star Trek fans. Friends. I've, I've been a fan literally since September 8th, 1966. <laughs> and um, when the new Star Trek started coming out, we started having heated discussions about the new track. And some of my friends started to suggests that there wasn't a lot of the social issue driven stories. There wasn't the morality that we would see in the earlier Mm -hmm. uh, series. And so I I was talking with a friend and and she was just like, well, look, you're watching the shows anyway. Why don't you just start taking notes? Uh, And so I really started focusing on the storylines, the morality, the social issues that were being highlighted uh, during season three of Discovery. I'd seen them in seasons one and two, so I didn't figure it would be all that difficult. And it was actually quite fun. Mm-hmm. Nice. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the issues that are raised in the third season? Well, I, I think that the, the number one thing really focused and revolved around how fragmented uh, the quadrants had become after the collapse of, I don't want to say the collapse, but the reduction of the Federation going from about 350 homeworlds to 38. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they were suggesting that the Federation really kind of held everything together. And so that was very important for me, uh, just for, as a sociologist, but Connecting it with morality is what we saw throughout the series is that these strong relationships that used to exist didn't exist anymore. Uh, and but there there were like ghosts of them uh, from from the past. They, they still remembered things. So so the Vulcans, even though they weren't part of the Federation anymore, still had some kind of connection. I don't want to say an emotional connection, but largely there's something there. Earth as well, they, they, they were very nationalistic and xenophobic, but at the same time, there was that memory of, of the Federation. And, you know, just connecting that to 
what the Federation stood for. I really felt like it, it worked well with Mead's ideas on the public good. And when people work together, instead of fragmenting out, that uh, we're able to accomplish great things. So our listeners might not be familiar with Mead's ideas. Could you say more about them? Yeah, sure. I, I, you know, in some ways, I mean, we could sit here and say that his ideas on morality and ethics revolve around the consequences of actions. But, but it's a larger picture than, let's say, two people interacting in a small context. It's taking into consideration um, everybody working and the outcomes of our actions and how they impact everybody and everything. So it's not just localized, it is, is more national or international. Uh, so for instance, uh, one of the articles that, that he published in 1929, he was lamenting how when we go to war, we unite. And people who normally wouldn't come together uh, do so in a time of war, so much that, let's say, a person wouldn't cross the street to pick somebody out of the gutter. But a week later, if they're on the battlefield, they'll take a bullet for that person. Mm-hmm. And, and so he, he was really sad that people had to rely on something tragic, something very astronomical to happen before they unite like that. And so what, what he really advocates is people working together uh, for the public good, but being very scientific about what the public good represents. So you can't have a situation where, you know, let's say murder is, is, is okay if everybody agrees on it. That, mm-hmm. That's not the public good. So it, it's, it's really just kind of focusing on identifying how people working together consistent with, let's say, natural law, uh, can reach uh, a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. So, so he doesn't see an absolute right or wrong, but a situation of better or worse in terms of outcomes if we were on a continuum. So where do, where do you think Star Trek's going with these ideas, right? We've gotten through the third season, and now there's this sort of recognition of the fragmented nature and, and so forth. Um, are, are these lessons that, that it seems like they're learning or just that, that you kind of learned in watching? Well, I, I, I think this was, was occurring both in seasons one and season two. Um, what we see in, in season one is this development of the modern day Federation. Mm-hmm. So we have to remember that since Enterprise to Discovery in, in, the, in the franchise timeline, not, not in our timeline, yeah. that there was about 80 years difference between Enterprise and when Discovery starts. To the best of my knowledge, and I haven't read the, the Captain April uh, novels, but there's a big gap where Starfleet and the Federation really aren't involved in anything real, real serious. And so, um, you know, it's been a long time since the Romulan War. So when we see them in the very initial episode in the pilot, you know, they haven't dealt with Klingons before, mm-hmm. you know, and nobody alive, you know, that, that's on 
uh, Giorgio Schiff knows anything about Klingons. And so it's very, very different. And, and so in talking with some of the actors, they, they've said that they have been told that they are beginning to form the Federation again, the way we know it. Mm-hmm. And so, so by season two, especially with Captain Pike and Spock returning, that we start to see things crystallizing in, in fitting with the way the Federation is the way we know it and have come to know it really probably more so since the next generation. Mm-hmm. You know, the original series kind of uh, finding their way uh, right. realistically. Um, so I, I, I think moving forward, looking at the series, judging by the trailers, it looks like, you know, they're, they're out there and dealing with a lot of issues. You know, I'm certain that, you know, as they're getting all the worlds back into the Federation and, and providing the lithium for everybody, that, you know, there's going to be growing pains and, and we'll probably see a lot of storylines that were very, very similar uh, to the other series that we've seen over the past 55 years now. Great, great. Um, you mentioned um, previously that you have a Star Trek fandom book. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, sure. Um, and where to find it? <laughs> well, it's it's on Amazon. It's put out by uh, Lexington Publishers or Lexington Books. Um, it's called uh, Oh, the Social Movements and the Collective Identity of the Star Trek Fandom: Boldly Going Where No Fans Have Gone Before. Nice. Um, yeah, that particular um, book was was just something I've been working on for about the past five or six years. Um, I hadn't really seen much in, uh, well, certainly nothing in sociology, but I hadn't seen a lot of academic stuff really focusing on fandom and, uh, and certainly not from a sociological point of view, but what, what I started to look at was trying to find an angle and I, I started really seeing the fandom as a social movement and uh, there's, the interesting thing for it about myself is is that the Star Trek fandom is actually organized the way you would see political movements uh, organized, and and that was fascinating. But the whole origin of the fandom, how it evolved, how it's kind of de-evolved a little bit, but some of the common themes that that we've seen over the years um, have have come to the fore. But I, in the very beginning. A, a lot of young people, an overwhelming majority of the fans were teenagers, mm-hmm. uh, uh, most of them women, most of them in love with Leonard Nimoy and Spock. And, uh, but be, because of that, the organization was structured in a way that maintained itself a little bit more than let's say if men were doing it. Because still at that time, uh, gender roles were still, um, you know, more biased, uh, well, definitely more biased. Uh, but the expectations of what women were going to do were different. So they had a little bit more time in terms of uh, devoting to organization. Mm-hmm. And 
that created an interesting dynamic and the ability to, to network and connect and doing it at a time where they had to use phones and the mail and, and <laughs> dial phones at that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just is absolutely amazing. And you know, all these fans, they were the ones who started the, the conventions and you know, the, the gap of 10 years between the last show of the original series and the motion picture, I, I mean, that should have killed off any fandom at all, but they kept it going and they kept it going through fan fiction. And, and some of that fan fiction inevitably got published, you mm -hmm. know, as, uh, as legitimate works uh, of literature. And, and it's just phenomenal. Um, but it, it's, I, I'm just kind of blown away when, when I see the things that, that they would do in terms of pressuring uh, television stations to carry Star Trek in syndication, how they would utilize uh, ads. They would actually buy the products that were advertised when the show oh, was in syndication and show it and send it to, to the television stations to prove that they were watching. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean... That's a heck of a lot of uh, effort. Um, yeah, and clearly but, very successful, right? I, I don't remember a time in the late 60s up till, you know, maybe 1980 and, um, you know, just after the first film came out that Star Trek wasn't on syndication where I lived um, and usually more than one station, so. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, you know, from the, from the time I started watching uh, you know, from the very first episode, it just seemed like that was just part of everyday life. And, mm -hmm. you know, as I became a teenager and kept watching it then in syndication, you know, I remember going to the theater and seeing your, you know, the movies in the theater. Mm -hmm. Same. Um, yeah. You know, I was actually in San Francisco opening day in 1986 for, uh, for Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And just absolutely phenomenal, um, um, you know, experience, you know, waiting in line for about 45 minutes that for, I think it was 11 or 11.15 showing in the morning mm -hmm. and uh, just happened to be there by accident. And the fact that it takes place in San Francisco made it ever more special. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it's really... Um, but the, the focus really was, was kind of how the, the fandom changed over, uh, you know, the past, well, at that point, 50 plus years, uh, some of the disagreements, some of the agreements, how, how marketing impacted, uh, uh, you know, the series, the fans, uh, all those kinds of things, um, you know, and how, how the shows changed a little bit, but it was really mainly focusing on on the fandom and how they how they adapted started using technology mm -hmm. doing, doing podcasts you know and, and things like that you know the movement away from the hard copy fanzines i mean i've got stacks of fanzines here mm -hmm. um you know and the tough part now is finding material from about the 1990s uh because that's when things started to shift to um, um, you know, the virtual reality kind of thing, but it also changed how we interacted because if you remember the old chat rooms, I do. Yeah. Um, like or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cause I, 
but you know, like on AOL, there'd be a maximum of 30 people. And, and if you were in a Wrath of Khan uh, chat room and you would start talking, well, you've got 30 people talking all around each other. And so all of a sudden, instead of writing two, three, four paragraphs that you would send off to a fanzine that somebody would respond to, you know, a month or two later, you're writing one sentence and somebody is, is you know, in there is responding and you've got to figure out who that person is that's responding and it just changed the whole dynamic yeah I can um, imagine. but it, it really it, it changed the type of and forms of conversation uh that that we really don't see um anymore you know we don't see the kind of interaction that we saw in the 60s 70s and 80s uh the the internet really changed that and even even on forums now um the interaction is 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 not as deep uh, certainly not as deep yeah internet as etiquette yeah. i think tarnishes almost all interactions some people yeah. are snarky and yeah. less of a communal thing like you were mentioning earlier right well, well wonderful and, and, the, the book sounds great um we're, we're also big fans of lexington for some reason or another um rachel's new book's coming out um on Lexington as well. So, um, yeah, good stuff. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. And um, we hope our paths cross again, maybe next year. Um, PCA is going to be in Seattle. So, that. Yeah, th this was actually the first one I've ever uh, been a part of. I, I started going to the Southwest Popular uh, American Culture Association meeting. It's just up here in Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's only a three hour drive for me. Um, and then I was talking uh, to a rep, a book rep, and, and they brought up the national one. And, and I was looking forward to being in Boston, but yeah, you know, oh, well, uh, but Seattle, yeah. Seattle's um, I'm good. Gonna be there. Well, hope, yeah. hope to see you there. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you. Okay, Rach, what are we liking this week? Well, we're searching for new things on Netflix. And um, we so we ran across this Dirty John series, which is um, a true crime anthology. Mm -hmm. And we watched season two on Betty Broderick first. And then we watched season one, which is where the um, series gets its name about Dirty uh, John. Dirty John. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't want to spoil it, but. A con man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's the nicest thing you can say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's dirty. We can say that. I but guess. I, you know, I, maybe it's because I've probably said in the past on the podcast that I love true crime. Although throughout the pandemic, it was too disturbing for me. So I, I really started to tell that I was post-pandemic. Well, I, I don't want to be insensitive. Obviously, most of the globe isn't post-pandemic. But that I was coming out of the pandemic after being vaccinated when I could finally drink coffee again and when I could finally watch true crime again. <laughs> yeah, we've got this stash of herbal tea that we hopefully won't ever need again. Yeah, and... but herbal tea every morning for 14 months 14 or something. Months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so like, we're liking that. We're, um, we're making our way through Community, which I'm liking a little better than I did after the first season, um, although it's just the throwaway for me 30 minutes before I get Go ready to, to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. it, it's funny-ish. It's not that funny. It's great. Um, 
Chevy Chase, stop falling down. It, it wasn't funny when you were playing Gerald Ford on Saturday Night Live. It's, <laughs> it's never been funny, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I've, I've never been a big fan of Chevy Chase, although I've liked the Vacation series um, and a couple of other things. Um, but, but, yeah, I, I think he's kind of bad in this. Um, wrapped up The Handmaid's Tale. We've already talked about that quite a bit this season. But, good season um, finale. Good season. I, I, I'll just say that they're in uncharted territory, sort of between the original and where things pick up um, in the Testaments. And I know Margaret Atwood's involved, but um, even with that, just doing a fantastic job. Right? I'm quite surprised by what they did. I, I, I wouldn't have done it. But it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it has all the feel of The Handmaid's Tale, right? Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think of like Planet mm-hmm. of the Apes or something. When, once they got past the first one, you know, the, the series was fun to watch, mm-hmm. but never exactly any good. But yeah, this is this is keeping a, a level of Handmaid's Tale esque intensity up mm-hmm. the whole time. It it is just wonderful. Okay. The, the, just to be clear, I don't mean I think it was a bad move, but I just like if I was writing the series, I never would have thought to do that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah. Where she ran away and joined the circus, and then <laughs> right, be- the circus. became a, a juggler that rides a motorcycle. Yeah, it's a little weird. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the the big finds for us um, the last couple weeks: um, a new show on AMC. Kevin can f himself. Um, really great. Yeah, so we got to be careful not to to spoil this at all. But I I want to say you know there's this tradition on AMC where. Some shows are, you know, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, um, just highest level. Three episodes in, this promises to be one of those shows. It, it's, it's as original as anything that I've seen. Um, it's an interesting take on, um, you know, the sitcoms, even though that's not its sort of main thing. There's this kind of metal level thing going on. Um, it's it's great drama. It's outstanding performances. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the the show that I'm currently loving the most. Yeah. Um, Sunday and, nights on AMC. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think it's, you know, depending on how it goes, um, gonna easily sort of make my all time top ten. Yeah, it's just an, in in wild. the great tradition of AMC classics like yeah. Breaking Bad and. Yeah, I, I already like it less than Breaking Bad, but potentially as much. And more than Mad Men, which mm. which I loved a lot mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. But man, I just mm-hmm. I can't wait for the next episode. Um, and then we're we're late to the party on this. Um, but Kim's Convenience has just been a blast, yeah. right? And so, um, like Rach said, we were looking around. And I was like, oh, what what do we want to watch? And I said, oh, lots of people recommend this, and mm-hmm. and it's been great. Um, I I think it's sort of um, an interesting. Um, take on, and I don't know if it's entirely supposed to be this, but but they're doing it. On, on kind of an old, um, you know, theme or motif, it's that sort of, you know, um, father knows best kind of thing that in the 60s literally just was that. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the dad of the family is the, you know, the ward cleaver. He's the smart one. This 50s as well. Um, yeah, the, the brains of the outfit, the decision maker. Um, and that thing gets turned on its head in the 70s. Right, and the best example would maybe be all in the family, where you have that that same character, but now he's Archie Bunker, and you're realizing, wait, this guy's a you know selfish, mm-hmm. bigoted, um, you know, um, racist in certain ways, um, certainly um, you know misogynist, um, 
And they, you know, they tried to make Archie lovable, and I think lots of people found him that way because he sometimes would tell the Joker had humility, but he's a sort of rotten character, right? Mm-hmm. And you get like the Jeffersons, mm-hmm. and people are going, well, the same thing can happen there, right? It, and every episode is George Jefferson getting his comeuppance, right? And so now, um, and there have been lots of these over the years. Um, Married with Children you know, kind of does the same thing. But this one's different, right? The, the dad's a little out of touch, um, and he's a little bit of a buffoon in certain ways. Uh, but in addition to just having lovable things built in, um, he's of a, a character that you really admire, right? Mm-hmm. This, this is a that guy that's a little out of touch, but with a lot of humility and mm-hmm. maybe willing to learn. And, and he's not just the foil for the smarter young people, right? Sometimes he turns out to be the one in the cross-generational disagreements um, that, that is correct. So I, I sort of see this show in a lot of ways as, as kind of a love letter to a particular culture, right? Korean in North America, right there. It takes place in Toronto, um, where, you know, every, every one of the main characters um, is really admirable, you know, um, admirable. They're, you know, worthy of, um, of watching, paying attention to, and liking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all in a sitcom. And on top of it, it's, it's yeah, just absolutely yeah. hilarious, right? Poking fun at themselves. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much enthralled with, with this as well. Yeah. Outstanding show. Okay, Rach. Well, that's a wrap. Episode 56 and season seven um, is in the can. We'd like to thank everyone for, for listening in. We'll be back in the fall with um, season eight. Um, and in the meantime, if you'd like to support our podcast, please go to ithinkthereforeifan.com, click on the link that says donate, and you can become one of our Patreon sponsors. One of our many, many, many Patreon sponsors. There's so many that we can count them on one hand. That's, that's how many we have. Um, but yeah, um, thanks for listening, and we're, we'll be excited to bring the new season. Take care. <laughs>